This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Attention, high school teachers of American history. Listen up, homeschooling parents of adolescents. General readers in need of a comprehensive history of the United States have I Got the Book for You. Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story by Wilfred M. McClay, is a beautifully organized, approachable, moving chronicle of the American nation from just before the age of exploration all the way down to the advent of the Trump administration. It is reader-friendly without being at all dumbed down. This non-ideological, brisk, narrative is winning plaudits from both the left and the right for its adherence to the facts and its fair-mindedness. It's a darn good read. Land of Hope is an entertaining but substantive primer on the basic events and developments in American history. In a time of furor and rancor over the origins of the nation, this is the book we all need. From the religious events in Europe that led to the settlement of the vast American continent, to engaging explanations of the British blunders that led to the American Revolution, to the antebellum political scene and the political and military repercussions of clashes such as the Battle of Antietam and the tragedy of Reconstruction, that's all here. So are key moments and milestones such as the Progressive Era, the New Deal, the Cold War, and the Civil Rights Movement. The book introduces the young to what is ancient history for them, the Nixon-Reagan administration, say. The book is jam-packed with every sort of history at play in its lively pages, military, social, cultural and literary, technological, and so on. An especially illuminating aspect of the book for everyone in every corner of the country is the way it presents the growth of the United States as a geographical entity and examines how the landscape shaped the nation and the many regional identities within it and when and how we became a union state by state. The maps alone are well worth the price of the book. We are in the hands of a master historian. Take up his invitation by all means. You'll be glad you did. Let's hear what Professor McClay has to say about the book. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope G. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Wilfred M. McClay, author of the book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. Thank you for joining us today, Bill. I'm very happy to join you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a delight, and I'm going to start by saying that I envy the high school students of today because I wished as I read that I'd had a book like yours when I was 16 and struggling <laughs> to follow. And I remember struggling to follow the many British policies, such as the intolerable acts and keeping straight the timeline of the steps leading up to the American revolution. And after reading every word of your gripping book, and I really did read every word. I now have a much clearer understanding of what happened when just before and during the immediate aftermath of the American revolution, that was just the start. The same goes with much of the momentous years just before and after the Civil War, and I could go on and on. I just did <laughs> about how much I learned. I've watched and learned and listened. I want to emphasize that I've watched and listened to several interviews with you about the book and lectures by you about it. 
And I urge listeners to Google Land of Hope to find those of those those interviews as well as your lectures about the book, the Hillsdale offer Hillsdale College offers for free. It's a wonderful series of lectures that's illustrated uh, with you and also with wonderfully chosen um, visual aids that are just ideal for those of us that are all of us who are stuck at home right now. And in those in those interviews you mentioned, I want to finally get to my question. <laughs> Sorry, just, your book is so wonderful. I just keep t- talking about how wonderful it is. But the writing quality of the book you mentioned, of which, which one of the reasons that you, you wanted to write the book, you said, was that writing quality of the other textbooks that were extant were atrocious. And so how would you describe yours in terms of prose style? And what are some of your models of good writing in history and otherwise? Oh, that's a really good question, uh, the models part especially. But uh, uh, I, I wanted it to be, uh, to have the feel of an essay of a story of, and I wanted to be very approachable for um, particularly younger readers. That that's really, I, I would, uh, I thought of them as my primary audience. I even, I had kind of an image of a uh, rising junior uh, uh, high schooler, uh, generally a boy, because I think of them as as much more resistant to uh, anything intellectual, <laughs> <laughs> and and something. Could I write this in a way that, without being gimmicky, without uh, dumbing it down, without uh, 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 resorting to nothing but stories, uh, which I think is a is, you just can't do that. You can't really. You're, then you're not really telling history. Um, could I could I find a kind of conversational tone that uh, that would be appropriate? And it took me a while. I I uh, I spent the better part of uh, a month writing the first chapter, which is only Ooh. a few only a few pages long. It's very short, and uh, and it, there were certain challenges with that uh, where to begin. But but hitting the right tone, hitting the right diction, the right register, the right feel was something that didn't, it didn't come naturally to me. Um, it, it, or didn't come effortlessly. Uh, once I got it, I had it. Uh, and uh, now I'm in the process of, uh, of sort of redoing that process because uh, we're doing a re- young reader's edition of Land of Hope oh, for, uh-huh. for much younger. You know, generally kids encounter U.S. history in the fifth grade or so. Uh, and so I wanted to, we, we wanted to do an edition that was suitable for them. Uh, I'm in the last stages of it that, and, and I'm not sure yet I've completely got that, got it right because you do have to even more rigorously kind of bring the level within range, but without dumbing down, I think dumbing down is the, is the thing you want to avoid at all costs. So, so that's really what I was striving for um models you know there are some of my models are not necessarily models that i could follow with this but i've always thought henry adams's history of the united states uh you know the uh, great grandson of john adams that henry adams um mm-hmm. uh, was a just a, a a masterpiece of uh, fine historical writing i've always admired uh the writing not always the ideas but the writing of richard hofstadter C. Van Woodward, uh, who I more more uh, fully admire across the board. Um, you know, some of the historians of um, 
writing in the 1960s and 70s and so who were uh, um, uh, liberals of a certain variety, no longer in evidence in our time, but who had a critical but fundamentally admiring view of the American past, but critical and, and, and in desire of, of pointing out the flaws in our in our past and in our makeup and uh but but it's really the sty- stylistically is what you're talking about uh yeah. and 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 the, those are the people who come to, I mean there are lots of others David Hackett Fisher um uh I think uh, uh oh gosh I'm forgetting the, the Pauline Mayer uh oh yeah she's uh, in your she's in your extensive bibliography yes so. yes no she she is terrific and and uh, the late uh Pauline Mayer, uh, who I was a sort of sort of a friend with. I, I don't want to claim too much, but um, um, gosh, I could go on. You know, there there are uh, there are lots of people who write well. Uh, they don't always uh, apply that to writing narratives. And you know, one of the things that and and you you and I have corresponded a little bit about this book, and it's sort of illustrated by. Our correspondence, because uh, you you uh, quite properly said, and I won't go through all the I- I- instances, but you said, "Well, what about this? Why don't you include this? Yeah. Why, why 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 is this missing? Why don't you do more with this?" And in every case, I have to answer, "Yeah, you're right. You know, I I could have, I maybe I should have, but one of the key things you have to do is." engage in continuous acts of triage, which means you know, throwing things out of the boat. You have to decide what has to be here, what could be here, what would be nice to have here, but uh, but maybe you don't really have room for it. And, and maybe having it here will be distracting. I think I look at textbooks by other authors, and I see this all the time, that, that the way their minds are operating is, well, I've got to mention this because the other professional historians will dump on me if I, if I don't. And the minute you start thinking that way, you've, you've lost your real audience, which is the people who couldn't care less what the professional historians think mm. or say, but who are simply asking you, for an account of something, something they can get their arms around, something they can understand about their own past, expressed in language, addiction of sufficient directness and simplicity, and ideally charm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, to, to hold their attention. Uh, well, there is a lot of there is a lot of charm in your book, and sometimes I laughed out loud at some of your the charming way you put things and you were talking about the Erie canal and you said this inaugurated a series of uh, uh, an era of emulative canal building. I thought that was delightful. <laughs> yes. Thorsten Veblen would that, have been. That actually, that actually was accurate. It was accurate and it was funny too. You know, that there was a, a boom in, in canal building. And all of it. Yes. I, let me, can I add something more sure. to this that, that I, I wanted you know, the book is called uh, An Invitation, The Great American Story. And that was meant to be a, a sort of a, a a modest way of saying, I this is not going to be the book, the huge hefty thing that up on your shelf that you're going to look, look up every little, you know, uh, doodad or scrabble argument <laughs> in your household. Um, uh, it, it's, it's an invitation to a much, much bigger thing. 
And uh, as such, I wanted to make it, I wanted to draw people in. You know, obviously when you invite people to a party, you want to kind of, you're not doing the whole party, but you want them to, to be tantalized by what might be in store for them at the party. But the other thing, I wanted to convey to them that this was, that a person is writing this, a human being, uh, someone who um, has a sense of humor, uh, has a sense of um, of his own limitations, um, uh, without being ridiculously uh, sort of uh, confessional and Rousseauistic about it. I, I wanted to to uh, I, I wanted to to subtly displace the idea that uh, the pronouncements of a historian come from nowhere and they are, they are pronoun- like the pronouncements of God or of science, the capital S, or something disembodied and impersonal. It's, it, it's not and never can be. Um, we, and I actually, this is a theme, as you know, that I touch on a couple of times in the book, that we're, we're participants in history uh, we're participants in the formulation of historical accounts. We can't entirely avoid that. In some ways, we actually should celebrate it, that that is the nature of historical knowledge, to have that participant element. But it also means that we have to be very rigorous about policing ourselves. That's, a, that's an ugly word. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe have a check on, uh, understand that, Objectivity is an impossible ideal, but it's one that we should strive for as much as we possibly can. Um, and uh, that doesn't always mean neutrality. I make this point in the end of the book that I don't claim to be neutral about America. I, you know, I love my country. I'm devoted to my country. My fate is wrapped up in the fate of my country. Um, so I'm not neutral about that. <clears throat> um, well, it's, well, it's kind of touching that you even say my country, because yeah. even that people feel on the left feel uncomfortable saying my country. They'll say, well, the United States is if it's some disembodied, uh, yeah. it's, if it's Switzerland or Germany. And all the <laughs> right. Same. Right. So, right. Well, you know, well, uh, uh, that, that, that is, I think, part of being sort of honest about the, the you know, the identity of the, the author is that, that I am, Situating myself, as they say in the academy, uh, uh, as as a, an American who, do, and I don't regard the word to, to pick up on your point. I don't regard the word patriotism with with horror. I I think it's to be used properly, and uh, perhaps the most single uh, of all of the uh, blurbs and favorable comments that I've gotten about the book, uh, the one that means the most to me. Uh, is uh, the one from Gordon Wood, the great, probably the greatest living historian of the United States, and one of, one of the greats of of the, of the whole pantheon of American historians. Uh, he says uh, in this, I won't read the whole thing, but he says that it's this generous but not uncritical story of the nation's history ought to be read by every American. It explains and justifies the right kind of patriotism, and hmm. I. I was just, uh, I still am, I, I, I get tingles reading it right now, because <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted to accomplish. And this is not, this is a utterly scrupulous, you know, sort of beyond, um, uh, you, you know, beyond, I wouldn't say it's beyond criticism, nobody's beyond criticism, but 
Gordon Wood's greatness would not be denied by anybody. Um, so uh, I, I'm uh, very happy to have that, uh, that that kudos from him. And so I'm not afraid to to um, see <clears throat> what I was doing with the book as an effort to cultivate the right kind of patriotism, which I think uh, is something we need. Uh, and I've, uh, I've had arguments with people on the left, uh, which I don't identify with the left, as you sort of may have under, picked up. But um, although that, I would so, say, I would say in an interview, in many of the interviews, you make the point that um, people, when you read the book, you can't really detect what your political views are, and that's that's well, to your credit. That yes, it's, it's I try not, to teach that way too. Students are often, you know, shocked <laughs> to discover that, I, and and there are. Um, on Amazon, there are a number of views. My wife has pointed these out to me the, of people who say, well, this would be a good book. The guy could just do something about his liberal prejudices. <laughs> and, and so there you go. <laughs> but um, I, 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 I uh, set out to write. Oh, yeah. Back to the left. I have friends who and I try to convince them. I think they conv- I convince them, but they don't stay convinced that all the things they care about. Um, let's just say healthcare, single payer, you know, uh, uh, you will not, those kinds of policies will not be successful. You might be able to impose them, but they won't, you wouldn't impose them successfully uh, by any standard of success. If you don't have the country believing in them, if you, if you don't have the country believing in itself, if you don't have people believing that there is a United States of America um, made up of lots of people who are very different from me, but to whom I owe a certain kind of loyalty and, and willingness to sacrifice. So there may be national policies. I'm not even necessarily talking about war, although war is a great example of that. But but something like like uh, welfare policies, healthcare policies, and where um, it it baffles me that people on the left don't understand that the love of your country, which the liberals of the era of FDR, the New Deal, they didn't have a problem with that. I mean, a few of them did, but not not by by and large, the the, the majority of them. And uh, yeah, I was just going to I was just going to interject and say that your treatment of the New Deal and FDR is a very balanced. I I thought as a, as a conservative person of conservative leanings, I thought it was very fair because you made clear that he was a charismatic, dynamic, capable per- person of great charm and vivacity that meant some meant a lot to people and raised the spirits. And you you met, you convey that very very clearly, compellingly. But you also on the other on the other side of the ledger, you make clear in your di- dissection of the National Recovery Act that this was that there was overreach and also in this of course in the supreme court packing but especially in the nra which most uh, texts often just don't even mention i think that it's very helpful to high school students to to say yes the new deal was a wonder where there were many wonderful aspects of it but there were things that did not necessarily work that were over that were that were stretching the bounds of what we consider acceptable constitutionally and yeah, yeah. No, and that, that's that, that's uh, the point I try to get across. I think where I may be especially different is that I, I try to give a, a fair shake um, to Calvin Coolidge, people like that. And yes, who, I was who gen- very generally objects of ridicule. And um, um, and I think for, for 
very little, uh, there's very little justification for that. Even Harding is better than, uh, than he's made out to be. And by the way, I, I mentioned this in the book, so, but for your listeners who probably don't know, Harding was the first uh, uh, presidential candidate to get more than 60% of the popular vote when he ran uh, in 1920. Um, yeah, you know, the, it, you know the joke about the women. The first presidential election, they picked the handsomest candidate running. <laughs> yeah, I've, I have heard that. We, he was, he looked like a president. Uh, that and uh, and he otherwise left a lot to be desired. But he was not uh, quite the figure of ridicule that, say, New Deal historians like Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Uh, depict him as. Uh, but um, uh, but he. Well, he had, that, that, he had, a, he, oh, he had a very good cabinet, too. That, that, uh, yeah, it was impressive uh, you named them. And that's another interesting aspect of your book is that you do you do hold up figures for, for reexamination that other people just, as you say, just dismiss or, or for example, Andrew W. Mellon. Yes. Which, which yes. surprised me, which is interesting. Yes, yes. I, and I should correct myself. He, he didn't have a very good cabinet across the board. It's attorney general, oh, <laughs> for yeah. example. But, but um yeah, it, I think in general. And, and Secretary of the Interior was no, yeah. was not a particular winner. <laughs> One thing I tried to fight against, and I don't know how successful I was, um, is this sort of parceling up American history by presidential terms, mm. because and I think something we—it's a habit we've all fallen into. Um, it, it 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 I think is um, is very deceptive. Uh, in ways that uh, that we may be seeing see unfold uh, in years ahead, but um, that uh, uh, I make the point uh, that that a lot of the changes that we associate with Reagan, at least so far as defense policy, were already underway at the end of the Carter years, uh, and, and I mean not just with respect to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, but you know significant increases in defense spending and. Um, there, that's one area where I think you 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 may miss uh, sort of deeper shifts and trajectories of American uh, political and national opinion by paying too much attention to who won which election. That said, I really uh, you know uh, thought long and hard about uh, how to, to organize the book and. Uh, uh, it, it should it be a primarily political history, which is what I think it is, uh, at least for well, fundamental. You say that pretty clearly yeah. in the book. You say that, yeah. but I, I I I had to go through a process of of thinking through um, uh, the um, you know most of the, the the real action among professional historians in the last 30, 40 years has been in social history. Um, mm. Although and, that's interesting, it's kind of it's sort of passe now, isn't it? I mean, social history was that when I was about thirty years ago, it was really the rage, but it seems to have been. Well, you may be right about that. I, I, I'm, I I'm not. Sure. I'm, not I, I'm not either. But I think that uh, the uh, you know the the history of social movements rather than of uh, political entities, um, and and uh, I think there's a presumption not just among scholars but among young people more generally that uh, the way the way you uh, affect social change is through institutions operating outside the formal structures of government which i think is a you know an unfortunate thing it's uh, part of the reason 
that um, we have such a sort of civics gap in our national understanding of younger people's understanding of our institutions. I, I, that's something I'm very involved in hoping to reverse that. Um, but but just to finish why I made the choices I made, I, I felt the first and foremost, if this is a, a kind of textbook for young people studying American history toward the end of their high school um, experience, laying a foundation not uh, the first and last uh, exhaustive treatment of the subject, but but the sort of things <laughs> like like the uh, it, they say in the Christian Church, uh, all things necessary to salvation. You know, <laughs> not everything that needs to be known. Um, so uh, I, I decided that if if I wanted to make a contribution to citizenship, to a more robust and informed understanding of citizenship and of the the rights and responsibilities of Americans as citizens. Then I did, then I felt the political, the orientation towards the creation and evolution of our institutions and the ongoing rationale for them um, was, was important. I think uh, just to, to, I mean, we had an interesting little educational project in the last few months, uh, as you and I are talking, uh, over the, uh, the value of the electoral college. Um, mm. you may have noticed that the whole discussion of abolishing the electoral college <laughs> has disappeared yeah, uh, exactly. and, and we don't need to dig into why that is, but it, if you lack the ability to think in terms of, um, the consequences of a changes, changes in your fundamental law, not just for tomorrow so you can get this thing you want tomorrow but for 20 years from now when the other side will be in power and and so on and so forth uh, then you really haven't thought it through you don't have the ability to think constitutionally uh, you don't even really have the ability to think uh, legally to think like a good lawyer thinks to, or like a good jurist thinks so uh, that's one of the things I, I hope to uh, people who read the book will, young people, will come away with the sense that, you know, uh, what's really is extraordinary about what they did in Philadelphia in 1787 is that they thought through all kinds of exigencies and possibilities that um, they weren't just sort of solving the immediate problem of what were we going to do about the British on our frontiers, what we were going to do about the fact that we couldn't get the Congress to do anything and couldn't raise revenues and, you know, all the problems under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, it wasn't, it had to be a long range vision. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Um, well, one, one thing I wanted to say, Bill, about the many, the many, I mean, the, the whole chronicle is wonderful, but there were individual facts the for example that I learned from your book that I did not know. And one of them was you mentioned the Constitutional Convention and you say you made the point that I didn't know 
that it was it made the decision early on to meet in secret, which which is surprising considering there had been a revolution and people were actively involved. They were putting their <laughs> lives on the line, and suddenly the doors yeah. are closed and the power the power players are are making the decisions. I thought that was fascinating. And was there any uproar about that? Uh, no, there was some. There was some, but but you know, I mean, almost any generalization like that, um, uh, you can make. You can find exceptions. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 it says you know, the 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 uh, chapter that begins with the, the account of the Grand Review uh, at the end of the Civil War, and I presented as this moment of sort of national consolidation, where you have the the great national army that didn't exist in 1861 marching through the streets of Washington. Mm. Well, a friend of mine drew drew my attention to an article somebody had written at some obscure journal sort of debunking the idea that he, he, he finds all these examples of horses that go off in a, you know chasing uh, spectators and uh, you know so you could do a sort of postmodern uh, re- reading of it and find find examples of ways in which well grand view wasn't so grand it wasn't so organized but uh, this is this is where I think we do have a problem with historical writing today and um, it I think it uh, is so wary of making any kinds of generalizations uh, that uh, it, it's sort of like the the great line from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, you know, do I dare to eat a peach? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, people need perspective. And when I say people, I'm talking about ordinary people, citizens of a democratic republic. I mean, where the ability to deliberate uh, and to engage in self-rule is is job one. You need to have a, a sense of the past that is accurate, uh, but can be in some sense used, can be drawn upon. I, and I don't mean in a sort of simple sense of toolkit utility, but I mean uh, that drawn on in the way that... Uh, we draw on, uh, you know, some of the deepest things in ourselves, draw on our memories of childhood during uh, times of travail, uh, draw on, on on these sort of deep sources of, of joy and happiness and hope that, uh, that can sustain us uh, and, and keep us going forward. We, we don't get that, I'm sorry to say, from my uh, colleagues in the historical profession. Uh, mm. uh, some of them, I think most of them, uh, I may even hear from someone who will hear this interview and, and write me a, a, a friendly but outraged email saying, that's not our job. Well, mm. uh, okay. Uh, but it's not your job to depress us either. Yeah, yeah, right? And maybe we don't really need the job that you're doing. Uh, mm. And that's the really frightening thing as enrollments in history plummet every year, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, what I try to do is strike a balance between I don't want uh, a, a filial pietistic view of the past in which the founders are all perfect demigods, wise beyond their years, which of course they were, but uh, wise yeah, beyond their years. Yeah, you make the point that how young many of them were. That was another yeah. fact that was yeah. interesting. That no, it's just, it is an astonishing thing. And, uh, you know, you can uh, do, uh, you know, the scholarship from Charles Beard on that sought to kind of humanize the 
the the constitution and the framers and and it showed the, the interplay of interests well of course you know uh, i i <laughs> i i don't think any of us could believe uh a historical account of the past uh that couches the founders as demigods Although I got to tell you, George Washington, the more I have studied him, the more I admire him almost without qualification. But but I'll leave that aside. Uh, he was a kind of miracle. Um, uh, you know, you, I wanted to strike a balance between not being uh, engaging in hero worship and, and, and uh, um, uh, encouraging my fellow Americans to do that. But on the other hand... Uh, not reducing the national story to um, Howard Zinn, I, yeah, to a, Howard Zinn, which is uh, Jill Lepore, uh, the historian Jill Lepore said he 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 wrote a history of atrocity, <laughs> which <laughs> I, I think is absolutely right. Uh, uh, it it's and and maybe that history needs to be told. I think I've often defended Zinn um, in in this limited way that if if Howard Zinn had not written about these things. Somebody would need to. The problem with Howard Zinn is twofold. First of all, he's he's a monomaniac about emphasizing atrocities and yeah. is completely indifferent to the uh, the achievements of American civilization and the comparative dimension of American, you know, compared to what? That's why yeah. I always tell my students, you've got to ask the question, compared to what? Um, yeah. And then the second thing is it had the misfortune of becoming too popular. I think if Howard Zinn's book was a little sort of oddball, out there, um, kind of uh, cult classic critique that everybody read, and um, but nobody really took to heart, um, it would have been a different matter. You know, it, it was too successful. <laughs> and yeah. uh, um, it, was, our, it was deleterious of impact. Yes. I, I, I remember, uh, uh, this is just one example of many I could give, I was in Italy for a year as a Fulbright professor in Rome. And uh, long story short, I, I had to consult one of the Americanist faculty at the University of Rome where I was and uh, um, about, uh, you know, did she have this or that sort of reference uh, and in her library? Because it's very hard to find English language books in Rome. Um and uh, it really is. It's amazing, uh, uh, even though everybody speaks English. <laughs> so um, she kind of went to her library and she says, well, here's here's the, the, the only book I ever use for historical. Oh, no, no. It was, it was yeah. in People's History of the United States. And mm -hmm. I I was torn. And I want I want to thank her because she, she handed it to me with the kind of um, sense of. The, the the you know the, this being a revered document the way a Baptist uh, would hand you his gilt-edged Bible say take care of this this is a, this, this is holy writ you can take this third uh, yeah, yeah. baby back home <laughs> and saying to her you know you 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 need to open you know uh, uh, here's the dirty little secret hope yeah I I don't think there's a single really first-rate American historian who would deny that Zinn's account is completely unreliable and in, 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 in many cases fictitious. Plagiarized the whole nine years. Mary Graybar has done an ama amazing book on this that details all of his transgressions. People have I didn't known, know about the plagiarism. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's in Mayor Mary's book. Uh, 
people have known about these things. Uh, and uh, I think there's a political sympathy with Zen that has overridden uh, the, the sort of professional obligation, a sense of obligation to tell the truth and to be rigorous and honest and uh, hold people accountable to the standards of professional you know, probity. So, and I, this is something that has always bothered me. Why won't people say anything? It's happening again with the 1619 project, which with the, with the notable exception, and here I give uh, the highest marks of all to Sean Willens. Good for Prince, you. I was, of, I was just going to say that. You anticipated what I was going to say. So oh, I, well, and, and no, he, yeah. look, Sean Willens is about as left as you can get. Um, yeah. uh, but that's not actually true. He, he, um, but but he's very left. <laughs> he yeah. he led both uh, Trump impeachments. He led the campaign to petition for the for impeachments. He's uh, very politically engaged. But he came out. Uh, he read the sixteen nineteen project, and uh, by his own account, he threw it. He was sitting Sunday morning in his living room reading, and he threw it across the room when he came across. Uh, some of the claims, such as the one that the, the American Revolution was fought to protect slavery, and uh, in general, the uh, uh, lack of interest in historical verisimilitude, uh, ver- historical accuracy, and um, it, you know, I don't, I haven't come across a, a really reputable first-rate historian yet who's disagreed with the conclusions that he and Jim Oaks and Gordon Wood and and uh, James McPherson and then there's one other uh, Victoria Bynum uh, in their letter to the New York Times, uh, which John Lentz uh, drafted, uh, asking them to uh, to make corrections. And the Times sort of huffily said, "No way, we 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 don't correct ourselves." But the historical profession I'm, I'm has sorry, not. Are you talking- um, um, Bill, are you talking about the 1619 project? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. A historical profession make, as a whole. Is I just not, wanted to make sure that we were segueing from 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 Zen to to 1619. Project. Oh yes, I'm sorry. I guess I did sort of do that. Oh, I but, wanted, but, I but they're, they're comparable. They're comparable states where I think I I, I think the profession has um, has 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 allowed its generally left wing coloration to. Uh, overshadow its professional obligations. That's a sweeping statement. There are many exceptions to that, um, but there hasn't been the kind of outcry um, against those things. And the, you know, Eugene Genovese was the great objector to Zen. And uh, he was, uh, uh, but he was almost alone. There have been a few others uh uh, but but uh, by and large, uh, it's it's something where political propensities have have they they cause people to keep quiet about their reservations. Well, anyway, I, I the book I, the book it's a tragedy. The book became so dominant, and I don't expect Land of Hope to displace it. But I hope it's an alternative, at least for some teachers, some students, some families. Um, uh, to uh, to get a, a better a better grounding in yes the complexity of the American past but also the the nobility of the American past I think both of those things are sustainable that 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 we have shameful 
elements in our past, some of which have, reflect uh, the, the, the problems and shameful elements of our present. Uh, uh, although the 1619 Project argument is, is, is kind of ludicrous, I think. Bill, can, can, can I read a passage from your book that I think oh, yes. you, you eloquently state that? And it, it, I, 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 I wrote it, I was really struck by it in terms of the 1619 Project. And you, you don't, you don't, you just calmly but firmly say, and I'll read it, what you say, you, you write, it would be profoundly wrong to contend to some do that the United States was founded on, on slavery. No, it was founded on other principles entirely, on principles of liberty and self-rule that had been discovered and defined and refined and enshrined. I love that, that they've been discovered and defined and refined and enshrined. That's a lovely bit of rhetoric. <laughs> through, the tempering, through the tempering effects of several turbulent centuries of European and British and American history. And I think that that just is a, is a very strong statement about we need to also understand that there were things that people believed in and that were noble. And, and, and I'd like to mention this point. You mentioned that you've got, you've mentioned the fact that people don't have things to believe in and that people, that people became figures of fun. In that respect, you talk about Calvin Coolidge, who was, who was often ridiculed and made to look ludicrous and as a small minded little man but you you quote this speech of his in the 1920s about the founding that's really eloquent i don't know if you have it handy but it's sure never i it. i uh have the book handy so um yeah uh, i had never heard it i had never heard of that speech and when i read it it really was a very striking bit of great soaring prose which you which i didn't expect from coolidge at all because he's not regarded as a great orator at all as far as i know no there's a real con about coolidge i mean he was a extremely well-educated man who a Amherst graduate who yeah. re read Greek and Latin and, uh, you know, was, was, uh, uh, but the, yeah, this speech is actually, Oh, there it is. It's page 292. Uh, um, this speech is, I can't understand why it's so neglected. It's, it's for, uh, the 150th anniversary of the American revolution. So it's for a, 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 a very, important ceremonial moment in the, in the life of the nation. Um, and uh, the way I presented in the book, it was also a, and this may be why it's neglected, but it was an ideological thrust against, it had an ideological or intellectual element to it. It's a thrust against the ideas of Woodrow Wilson and of the progressive movement. Um, in, in uh, certain very particular ways. Uh, Coolidge uh, says, yes, you know, a, a lot of things have changed since 1776, but if all men are created equal, you know, that's final. I'm, I'm quoting from memory here, but let me, let me, since I have the book. Yeah, he says, uh, and this is sort of, uh, this is really directed against the progressives and against Wilson. It, if all men are created equal, that's fine. That's not just a kind of temporary arrangement uh, or an ideological sort of a bit of false consciousness that we feed to the masses. Uh, it, it's final. If they're endowed with inalienable rights, that's final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the government, that is final. Uh, no advance can be made beyond these propositions. And again, advance referring to progress. He says no advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. So, so it is, it is a very clearly 
there's a kind of debate going on, and it's still going on uh, in our national life between whether um, the, the principles enunciated in 1776 and then 1787 uh, and 1789 uh, with the, the ratification of the Constitution um, are still operative, or have they been superseded by um, all the changes that have come with industrialization, with uh the, uh, the development of a mass society, and so on and so forth. Uh, I will say for your listeners that I think I give a pretty good uh, um, account of the progressive argument, which is something that some of my friends uh, who are you know, proponents of, of 1776 and the principles thereof, I think they, they sometimes oversimplify. Uh, you know, the progressives were very, very good People in many cases who are very earnest, very um, uh, committed, often out of a kind of religious uh, sense of, of obligation and fervor, which is, is sometimes missed uh, and sometimes can be misdirected. I mean, Wilson <laughs> had a, a kind of religious fervor that often led him to, to I'm, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Yeah. But but uh, but but the progressives, they they. Uh, I, I wish I could find a better way to say it than to say they meant well, but they did. And they may be right about some things. There may be a well, way. I was, I, yeah. was, I was just going to say, Bill, that you have a fascinating, your discussion of the Scopes trial is a fascinating and enlightening look because this example of the book, how it reexamines the cliched view of things because on the subject of progressivism, here we had William Jennings Bryan, who was a, a leading who was basically created a lot of the, the Democratic yeah. Party's prop form on progressivism, and yet he's re, he's regarded as he's he's portrayed as this you know this ignorant buffoon, backward looking, prejudiced uh, moron. Whereas Clarence yeah. Darrow is held up as the figure of enlightenment, and yet you make the the point, and I, I with hope it will send high schoolers to really examine, go back and, and try to find the trial transcript and make the point that you make the point that the book that Scopes was teaching from was heavily laden with eugenics. And it, it, it was, was a, it's a racist yeah. book. I mean, we overuse yeah. the word racist, but if there's anything the word can be applied to, it would be that book. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was Brian who was really on the, on the side of, of, of the enlightenment in many ways and saying that the people of this, of, of the town have the right to not want a race to, to, to determine, to have some say in what's being taught to their children. In this case, it was a pretty disgusting yes. doctrine. Yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it's uh, it, Brian. It, it's interesting because uh, Brian saw a, a correlation between the doctrine of evolution as its natural selection in the Darwinian sense, uh, and the uh, the, the sort of debasement of human dignity. You know, he he. Um, now you can. Uh, you can uh, you can accept or reject that uh, collocation of things, but it makes a certain, it's something worth arguing with um, rather than just ridiculing as un, unscientific. Um, what's what's harder to uh, reconcile is really sort of the conventional wisdom of our own time, which is that well, of course, uh, natural selection is a, is the best and most reliable account we've been able to devise of the the origin of species and the the way that the way that species 
uh, change over time and explanation of fossil records and so on. Um, uh, but that has nothing to do with our views about human rights, human dignity. Um, you know, that's that's what we all think. I, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, not not everybody, but it, it, that's sort of the conventional wisdom. Uh, and those are two very difficult to reconcile ideas. Uh, that that's the science uh, drawing on the premise of a completely uh, uh, materialistic. Um, Un, unteleological world. That is the essence of natural selection is, is there is no teleology. There's no sense of ends. And yet the sense that human beings, each individual human beings have from somewhere uh, this kind of inexhaustible dignity. Um, well, you know, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it, through most of human history, if you go back to, to Aristotle and Greek science and so on, they, there's been a correspondence with the scientific view of the human person and the philosophical, theological, metaphysical view. We now are, we live in an era in which the two are just hopelessly divided. Um, and uh, being a partisan of hope myself, both of the land of hope variety and of, of, of the interviewer hopes variety, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a sustainable thing. So, uh, uh, you know, but I'm not a scientist and I'm not really a, a, a deeply skeptical of modern science. Uh, uh, but I just point well, I this gonna... out as a historian that there is this incongruity. And, and the example of Brian, I think we can ill afford to look down our nose at people like Brian. And you know who thought that too, and I have it in the book, is John Dewey. John Dewey, the sort of uh, anointed apostle of all things right and good and progressive and scientific and democratic and and, and rational and so on and so forth. John Dewey, you know, uh, repeatedly said, you know, look, the guy like Brian is democracy. This is democracy. We don't um, it, 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 but the there was this sort of tendency to mock, uh, which I think is human nature, of course, but um, that really was unfortunate in that it helped to facilitate something that we now see in, in full blaze is the separation of progressivism from populism. In Brian's time, they were together. Brian was yeah. both both things. Um, Brian was very radical about uh, economics. Um, yeah, very much yeah, so. yeah, he really was. So, uh, but he was also a populist. Um, well, I just want to inter interject to say at this point for listeners, I just want to remind your listeners that we are talking today with Wilfred M. McClay about his book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. And I wanted to to say, Bill, uh, on, on the on. We, I, I love talking about Brian, but I do want to mention the other the other aspects of your book that are really helpful too, as to students. I think. Well, well actually, one one thing I want to mention about that struck me, and if I were a high school teacher in your book, I'd find a lot in the progressive. We spent a lot of time on the progressive part of in the interview, but there's every your, every aspect of your book is is the whole panoply of of American history, the whole the whole the whole shebang. But I was going to say that, and you mentioned you mentioned that you make the point that. Um, that city, city government, city man, the city manager model was a progressive 
uh, inst- uh, uh, reform. And I thought that would be interesting if I were a high school teacher, I would say to them, to the students, now isn't, let's, let's go, let's, let's examine this and go mm-hmm. out and try to find out how is our city governed? Do we have a city manager? How yeah. Do we have a city council and that kind of thing? And that's the kind of thing from your book, I think is really useful because there's just a lot that I could see making a lesson plan out of just as, over and over again. I can think now that would make a really interesting unit in and of itself. But, Yes. No, I think that's, that's right. And this comes, this kind of thing comes up a lot when you, I, I actually haven't taught the U.S. history survey in a number of years, but when I used to, to do it, it was, it, it was so much fun to bring up a, a point and then point to the world around them and sort of say, uh, you know, does this apply to the town you're living in? You know, cause, uh, when I lived in Tennessee, it's teaching at the University of Tennessee. We I lived in a little town that that did have a city manager, but the, the, you know the the, the uh, my students actually who are from all over, but uh, they didn't they didn't know this. They didn't know what any of this meant. Um, it it you know a great example of this also is um, immigration. Um, yeah, I was I, I was going inter- to interrupt you again because there's there's so much that I wanted to say about because I think that your book would be very profitable to recent immigrants and their families. Yes, yes. Well, and I I know this for I had I just um, had a long wonderful lunch last weekend with uh, a, a a refugee from Honduras uh, who is the headmaster of a charter school in San Antonio. I was down there actually speaking at different charter school, but, but, and he, he, he said, I knew that I was going to love your book just when I saw the title, because for me and my family, this has been the land of hope. And, uh, and he said, I was just That's so fascinated. Such- yeah. I was so fascinated to read about the experiences of other immigrants. And, but you know, for um, another way to use immigration is you can read uh, or the new deal would be, let me use the new deal as an example, because, you know, I, I remembered also in Tennessee uh, teaching kids about uh, the new deal and uh, they, yeah, yeah. They'd write it all down. Um, and, and the very, it was all very sort of formulaic and they might, as, you might as well have been talking about the canals on Mars uh, <laughs> as far as they were concerned. And I, 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 I would spend a little extra time on the Tennessee Valley Authority. And uh, and I said, you know that big building in downtown Chattanooga? That's the TVA. That's the Tennessee Valley. That's that, that's one of their main offices. Do you all know this lake, Lake Nigajack? That was created by TVA. And, and, um, and by the way, uh, if you have grandparents uh, or great-grandparents, some of them did, you know, and these were very rooted families, Ask them what they remember about when TVA came in, and uh, you know, and I think some of them, some of them would have hated it because they were they, displaced, and others would say it was a salvation of my community. It would be well, God, you you know a lot more about it than most people. The hope but it, <laughs> that's exactly right, uh, the, and and uh, but most of all, there was this. I think I think I think I should. I, I've often felt I should get credit for strengthening families by by giving assignments that force uh, students to talk to their parents and grandparents about their lives, and um, and suddenly they discover these big themes of history, immigration, 
urbanization, you know, um, the the New Deal, you know, changes in federal policy touched down in the and, and made a huge difference in the lives of their parents. Um, and uh, I, I'm that I was this way from very early on because my dad, um, who, who came from very uh, uh, shall we say unpromising beginnings, uh, uh, ended up working in the, uh, uh, the the Civil Works Administration and the CCC, the Civilian Conservation right. Corps, two of the two of the main New Deal sort of make work agencies, and uh, he 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 loved uh, Franklin Roosevelt. He he ended up, I think. Voting for, uh, I, I'm, I think the last time he voted was in 1968. I'm sure he voted for Nixon, uh, and uh, became very disaffected with the Democratic Party. But he, but the New Deal, uh, you know, he he loved, and he also was, he would have agreed with everything I say about the WPA and the the Mills Brothers. I I, I know about that song because my father <laughs> taught me taught me about that song, <laughs> and Louis Armstrong and the Mills Brothers. Uh, uh, for your listeners, you'll have to look at the book to know what it is Hope and I are talking about there. But, oh, well, I'll uh, tell them. It's, it's a very funny. It's a parody of, of the make work and I, uh, talking about my federal job. And you just, I forget which agency it was. It was a WPA. It was a WPA. Yes. Dodge sitting around with a WPA. Yeah. You know, it's it's Louis Armstrong and the and Mills Brothers. And uh, it's, it's a very comic uh sardonic but also in some ways affectionate too it's sort sort of they're not out to cause a revolution or anything they're just saying you know this is this is great you know you can't get fired don't know what to do uh so i may take my rest till my time is through it, it's <laughs> it, it it's well, it, could, it could be right too that they're critical though they do want to work hard but they've got these I, enough managers that I, are not efficient. well yes yes that that's uh that's entirely possible too but he, getting back to my point i've wandered a little bit from it 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 you know, we talk about history coming alive and all everybody wants history to come alive. Well, you know, you get a living sense of the connection to the past by knowing that your grandfather was pushed off of his land by the WPA. Um, I mean, by, I'm sorry, by the, the TVA. Um, or uh, I often, uh, uh, with like the Great Smokies National Park or Shenandoah, which we, we celebrate you know, uncritically as sort of these perfect acts of civic virtue. Well, nothing in life is like that. People got pushed off the land there too. I used to own some land in the Shenandoah Valley and I knew all the stories about how families had been pushed out of the park. And they, they were, this is a, a, again, this is a part of history that is, um, it's not the central theme. Um, if I were writing a Zen-like history, I'd present, you know, the the, the tragedy and atrocity of Shenandoah National Park. Uh, <laughs> but um, it 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 is part of the history, and the people who are sort of squashed by that history. Uh, well, I, well, as I as I read, it, because I was uh, as a Westerner, uh, I was I was kind of I, sort of a chip on the shoulder about American history text and it's Oregon never moved. Well, yeah. well, Oregon mentioned, and I thought, I, as I kept reading, I thought you really do capture the 
uh, fairly, I think, the, the sense of region and identity and regional identity. And it's not all New York, but you do it, you do it fairly. I mean, you cover everything from Emerson and Concord to uh, to the, what's happening in the South, the Southwest and, and, and the Midwest. And, and you, you cover Wisconsin, the progressive movement. It's, it's, it's very fair regionally, I think. I, I try my best and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm married to an Oklahoman that, 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 that helps keep me. Well, I was, was, was going to <laughs> say that has that, that, that certainly getting on the, on the subject of the corpus is called the book is called land of hope. And you really convey the sense of the United States as a land as mm-hmm. a geographical entity, and the and the, and I was going to ask you about that being in Oklahoma. That the sense certainly land was from its very statehood, from the whole great land rush in Oklahoma. But I was going to mention that the the um, the 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 way that the map the map. Oops. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Sorry about <laughs> that. And, oh, that's all right. That's funny. <laughs> I just goes to show it's probably a student saying, "Professor, I need some help." But, no, um, no, it's somebody who has no business uh, calling me. Oh, uh, that's funny. That's all right. <laughs> one of my friends, undoubtedly well, wanting to have lunch or something. Well, hey, I, a very insistent friend. Well, I, I was, thought I had. Well, I, well that I, gives I, me I, opportunity to mention, given that we're mm, listening to a sorry. bit of music. You also no, you also cover. That gives me excuse to say that. Here we're listening to a bit of music. You also cover the arts very well. There's well, I thank you for that because I I'm not sure I do nearly enough. Um, I'd lo- love to have done more with uh, with painting and sculpture and uh, and music. I think it, it, it this is something you know I could spend the rest of our time together talking about this, but I think so much about America is best conveyed through a, a considering, you know, I'm going to have to turn off my phone. I hope you can edit all this out. I Well, certainly. I'm <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Well, I, I really I am sorry. I just, no, I like, people I like are, com- well, it's this relief. rush of people calling me and I, I don't know what's going no, on. No, it was remiss on my part not to <laughs> tell, oh yeah, supposed to turn off our, our devices. Yes. But, that, but that discussed, that's another thing I'll mention that given that's a device, you also discuss technological history. Yes, yes, as best I can. And, you know, I think you just can't get away from it. There are certain ways in which, uh, um, uh, you know, I can't remember who said this, but uh, so if, if he's listening, forgive me for not quoting you, but that uh, the, the, the birth control pill in the automobile did more to change life than the uh, the writings of Sigmund Freud and Darwin. <laughs> no, I think that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. So, I, I, you know, there are ways in which just the, the fact of a technologi- technological in- innovation. Um, well, on that subject, on the matter of the automobile, one of the, the most interesting profiles is you talk about Henry Ford and and, and his, his economic impact, his sociological impact, not just his technological impact. So that was that was important, too. It is, yeah. I, I mean, I, I could, I could have said more about Henry Ford uh, because, you know, there was a really dark side to him, and I only oh, yeah. begin to touch on that. Um, but you know, and, and I think this is true of a lot of American originals, American sort of creative geniuses. That they, Henry Ford, is is exemplary in a certain way, the, an example of how a certain kind of craziness is necessary to make an innovation 
but then once you've made the innovation, it's hard to turn off the craziness <laughs> and mm-hmm. it gets, it gets directed in other, other directions. And that's sort of, uh, and he stopped innovating too. Yeah, he stopped innovating, and, and and if it really he and, and he he uh, if he had been smarter, he would never have been overtaken by General Motors. That's kind of ironic uh, because his his great hero was Thomas Edison, who was yeah. constantly innovating, and, and yes. Ford basically plateaued at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I wanted to ask you in terms of of when the, and the, we've talked about the book as as a history of the land and i did want to mention again the maps are just i, I can't say enough about them because it really made clear to, again if i had been six if i were back in six if i were back 16 again oh that i had these maps because it makes clear what the kansas nebraska act was about you make clear why where antietam was and, yeah. and your discussion by the way of military history in the book is absolutely master masterly it's just you make clear those two battles about as battles, you talk about the the loss of life, but you talk about where they came in the in the in the timetable of the of the Civil War, what they enabled Lincoln to do, why were they were important, what 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 they were meant militarily, what they meant economically, what they meant in in before, I, I guess I guess they were in just sort of at, at the time of Gettysburg, and you make clear which which battle was important and why. But you again, you don't dwell on it. You don't get into. You don't get bogged down in the minutia. Of, of yeah. No. Thank you. Thank. I, and, and can I? This is a great moment to say something that could apply to almost everything about the book. Is that um, I um, I actually used to work uh, in military history. I, I, I when I graduated from college, I got a, I, I went to St. John's College in Annapolis and. I wanted to stay in Annapolis because I love the place. And uh, uh, I ended up getting a job at the Naval Academy um, with the U.S. Naval Institute Press. And I became their history oh, that's editor. A, that's a wonderful institution. It, it, it was, it? yes. And, you know, I was a sort of consulting editor for the Proceedings, their great magazine. But but my job was being the history editor. No, that's, a very, I, that's a very good periodical. I've seen that as well. Look, I had no qualifications for this job. I'm, the truth can be told. I mean, I I just kind of waltzed in and, and and took an editing test, and they they were so impressed by that they they did this and uh, uh, and you know I didn't study history in college either. I mean, it was it's sort of. One of those, it was a really? fluke, but, but a miracle that I got this job. But, what what but did it, you study? Well, St. John's is is the original great books Oh, school. that's right, so, of course. So you do everything, really. You do as much math and science as you do um, what might be called humanities. Uh, and you study language all four years, Greek, uh, French. You know, it's, it's a very interesting place. And both of my kids went there, too. So... Uh, my wife is the only sane one in the family. That's the only not non sane judge. Anyway, uh, uh, one of the things I noticed when I started, I started reading military history like a demon, as I hadn't since I was a kid. Like I, many typical American boys, at least of my generation, I read, uh, you know, John Toland and Bruce Catton and. Uh, I remember one of my favorite books was The Big E about the great. And the Enterprise, the great aircraft carrier, with oh, under its under its various incarnations, um, and uh, 
I was going to say your 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 portrayal of World War II is is again superb, and the maps of World War II are excellent too. Well, the, thank the, you. We had European to do we had to do those maps. Uh, yeah, we spent a lot of time on those maps. Get them they're right. They're very they're but, they're perfect in every respect because as the, the, they just make clear what they occupied territories. It's just they're 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 beautiful too. They're not just educational. Yes, they're, no, they're, our, they're our really cartographer did a great job. Uh, but but here's the thing. I, the reason. If 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 I write about this with clear great clarity and uh, and I'm you know I'm I'm happy to hear you say it but I I strove for that um, but the reason I did is because I read a lot of military history and I knew the tendency of military historians to get bogged down in details mm. so that you know and and, and you, there's always something more. To be added, you know, that uh, somebody else was out on the flank. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I actually did have somebody say about, uh, you know, uh, most of the complaints I've had about military history is I don't say enough about Texas and Texans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, talk about living up to the cliche. But, <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, but I had somebody say, well, you know, no, I don't. Texas, right? Why, yeah, exactly. Why don't you mention the role? You know, I have this speech by Joshua Chamberlain. Uh, yeah, that's a wonderful uh, speech. And what was interesting too is that you portray him not in his famous role at Little Round Top and as a soldier, well, but you, I mean, you portray. There you as go. A, you, 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 you've hit on exactly the thing that people said. Why don't you talk about that? And I said, look, this is the kind of decision I had to make. You know, uh, every sentence uh, of things that I knew or things that I could at least uh, find in the standard reference or standard. But you made, but you know, you made the wonderful choice of portraying him not in his famous role, but in his, but as a chronicler of the piece, which I thought was. Yes. Really and I think I just, all I say in the, about his wartime experience is that he would played a, 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 a critical role at Gettysburg. And which, of course, isn't the only thing he did uh, as a military man. And uh, and he was a Medal of Honor winner and all these these things uh, that one could say about him. I have friends at Bowdoin College who would have liked to see more <laughs> about him. And the fact that his home is a museum now in Brunswick and uh, that, you know, so on and so forth. And he was a graduate of Bowdoin, you know, uh, well, along, with, I, along I with Nathaniel he... Hawthorne and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and you know, so on. Uh, yeah, but you know that's what you have. You have to turn off the faucet, um, and, and and the faucet always wants to open up more. But I think that's a great example. So the military history I've I've read, you know, like I, I, here's true confessions. I've you know I've I've read through my lecture notes for um, the you know the coming of the revolution, which is very confusing. Uh, yes, it is. And, and you do a wonderful yeah, job of laying out. And, Again, I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize that. And I, I'll have to it. sort of relearn it each time. Mm-hmm. And then I'd come out and give a lecture, and then there was this, there was that, there were these acts, there were these acts, there were these acts, the response was this. Right? Uh, and um, Bill, it, could, it, I, could, I, could I interject yes. again and say what I think you, you do beautifully in the book with, as you say, it is very confusing, but you quote um, 
Captain Levi Preston. Oh, and, yes, yes. And that, that's just wonderful because you, you boil it down to, he's, he was interviewed many years later, and I'll let you tell it because it's such a, but it's a wonderful yes, way that he's yes, yes. the story in the book, and he tells well, the story, and you tell the story of his story. It's really wonderful. I, I will do that. Let me just finish the other thought uh, uh, quickly, which is that I, I, if I do this well, this sort of simplification, is because I had to do it for myself because I got lost in the blizzard of details. And I did one of my fields in colonial revolutionary history at, at, at graduate school with Jack Green, one of the greats of the field. And, you know, so I, it's, but it's, it's this blizzard of details problem that you can't see the forest for the trees, whatever cliche you want. Uh, okay. About Levi Preston. This is a, another, a great example of, of a kind of, I think, uh, profound simplification uh, and Fleetwood Preston was a man in his 90s. I think he was 91 years old, something like that. Uh, he was interviewed by a young man named Mellon Chamberlain, who I, I never thought to look whether he was related to Joshua Chamberlain. Uh, but anyway, uh, Levi Preston had been a soldier. I think he was probably about 18 years old at Concord. You know, and he, it's on his tombstone in Danbury, Massachusetts, where he's where he was born and where he was buried, <laughs> uh, Danbury, Massachusetts, um, now the home of big car dealerships <laughs> in the Boston <laughs> area. But uh, he was, uh, and he he was interviewed by this young Dartmouth uh, student named Mellon Chamberlain, who. Uh, Asked him the question, you know, what, 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 you, what were you doing? What did you think you were doing uh, uh, when you uh, uh, when you went to the conquered fight, as he said? And uh, and he goes through this series of actually, let me look it up while we're while we're talking. He goes through this series of things. Was it uh, was it the the, the the Stamp Act? You know, uh, was it the Intolerable Acts? And he, he says, well, I, you know, it didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't feel those oppressions. Stamp back. I never saw a stamp. What about the tea tax? <laughs> no, you know, they, they, we never drank it, tea. Uh, were you reading Locke and Harrington? Uh, he said, never heard of them. We just read the Bible and the Psalm, uh, Watts, Psalms and hymns, you know, the catechism uh, and the almanac. And, and so all of, and, and what he's doing here, what the Dartmouth interviewers, the, the Mellon Chamberlain is doing here, is sort of going through all the <clears throat> then current theories of historians uh, about uh, what caused uh, the American Revolution, what motivated uh, the, the 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 Minutemen and other patriots to fight, um, and uh, I could have done the same thing. I could have said, "Well, there's this theory. There's the, there's the, the ideological theory. There's radical Whig ideology. There there it's it's republicanism. Uh, there 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 are a whole series of quarreling schools of thought among historians about this. And I could have done it. Other textbooks do this, um, and they think uh, that, that that by doing that they're doing their job because they're giving the student a sense of the diversity of opinions. Among <laughs> historians, well, I, I, I thought that Levi Preston's answer to the final question: "What were you doing? <laughs> what did you mean in going to the fight?" He says, "This young man, what we meant in going for those redcoats was this: 
we always had governed ourselves and we always meant to. They didn't mean we should. And I think I don't I don't say this, but I think that's as good a kind of deep summation, superficially simple, but a deep summation of what the American Revolution was about, which is why I call the chapter on the American Revolution, the revolution of self-rule. Uh, it, it, it was not uh, a revolution fought initially to, to establish the rights of man in a kind of universal way. Um, it, it was really motivated by this sense that, you know, we, we, we'd been, we colonists, I'm being a colonist for the moment here. We'd been in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in North America for 150 years. We'd established our own institution. We taxed ourselves. Uh, we had our lower houses, our House of Burgess and so on, to, to serve as our equivalent of the House of Commons. You know, we replicated, to a large extent, British institutions of self-government. We were still loyal to the king. Uh, uh, we still thought of ourselves as subjects of the king. But insofar as we were, um, you know, the, the citizens of our own colonial settings, we ruled ourselves. Um, and I do go on to explain, or I, I, pre I preface this by explaining why the, why the British were doing this. They weren't doing it just because they were feeling their oats and thought, hey, let's just go and stick it to the colonies. There, mm. there was a very good and even defensible reason why um, they were trying to work out a way to tax the colonies. They just spent a fortune on the French and Indian War for the which colonies. You also, which so, you also cover wonderfully in the book, too, yeah, like, along with yeah. the Mexican-American War and, and yes. the War of 1812. So. And, you know, and I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, I, I, I can't mention his name, but one very eminent uh, political scientist friend said, you know, I never really understood what the fuss was about the French and Indian War. You, you really explain it. Why Why it was such a big deal. Why it was, uh, um, you know, I sometimes say the French and Indian War was to the revolution. What the Mexican War was, the Civil War, it was the thing that made something uh, as close to inevitable as anything in history is. And I, I believe almost nothing in history is inevitable. That's something else I try to convey in this book is that, um, you know, my favorite, favorite uh, political science sort of writer, if you could call him that, is Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville. Yeah, you make clear in and, the book that that's the book that you yes. say that, that, that's the one everyone yes. should read. And Tocqueville, you know, it's a book about how um, democratic equality changes everything. And it's this kind of over overriding uh, change in the, the very structure of reality uh, that that changes everything. But he he says, and I can quote this from memory, uh, that uh, you know the, the, he says there are some people who say that everything is determined by circumstances, and uh, and he says this is a false and cowardly doctrine. He says mm -hmm. it it um, he says providence has not created the human excuse me the human race either entirely independent or perfectly slave 
it traces a fatal circle around each man so that he, that he cannot leave. But within that circle's vast limits, man is powerful and free. So with peoples. Uh, that's, I think, a great point to be made about it. The history is, in some sense, determinative um, or conditioning of who and what we are. We wouldn't be who and what we are without our history, but we are not enslaved to that history. Um, we aren't slaves of our past. We we have the ability, we have freedom uh, within a limited range, within that fatal circle that Tocqueville describes. Uh, well, and- well, on that note, which is a very moving summation of your very powerful book, and it's 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 very it's really a, a, a masterwork. I think you should be very proud of, and um, I w- I would just really urge people to to read it because it's it's it's, it's I'm I'm glad I read it. I'm a better person for having read it. I'm a more educated person, and I'm a, I'm a I'm a, be- I'm a better American. I think I'm a better citizen. If that doesn't sound too so self-referential, <laughs> I, I I think you were a great American already. But I, I I'm happy to take credit any credit you want to give me. I'm uh, I like most authors. I'm incredibly. Uh, uh, have this sort of quivering vanity that that loves being fed. <laughs> so, well, so I, I, I think it's well it's well deserved. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Wilfred M. McClay, author of the book Land of Hope: An Invitation to the Great American Story. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, everyone. Bye bye, and thank you, Bill. Thank you. 